us. A number of people will be on the panel. Some of us will just keep our mouths shut and let the people who know what they're talking about talk. But Eric, how about you take over? Great. Thanks, Connie. Um, and I will make no derogatory comments about San Diego, I promise. <laughs> Not sure what I would say. So who are we missing? We have a great representation here. <laughs> Great. Well, thank all of you for. Um, let me see. Does this work? <laughs> thank you all for sticking it out through the afternoon. And um, what I'm going to do is talk really about antiretroviral therapy and talk about what I think are continue to be the three key issues that we're all dealing with on a clinical basis. Uh, and largely, it's to get input from what the people in the audience are doing. It's always nice to hear what's going on amongst our colleagues, as well as to get some specific input from our variety of panelists. So with that, let me see. OK, so we're going to do a, a when to start. These are my disclosures. They're in your, the packet online. We'll summarize key issues that influence the decisions as to when to start therapy, particularly in select patient populations, summarize data supporting the selection of first-line therapy, uh, and discuss key issues related to switching therapy for antiretroviral toxicity, which is another issue we deal with fairly routinely. Let me start with this introductory question. Which of the following has not been associated with increases in creatinine? Tenofovir, darunavir, ritonavir, adizanavir, ritonavir, the new fixed dose combination tenofovir, FTC, cobacistat, elvitegravir, or all of them that have been associated with increases in creatinine? Go ahead and vote. Okay, perfect. So we have about a third say darunavir, a third adizanavir, and a third say all. So we will come back to this and hopefully address it. So let me start with case one of when to start. And we'll be looking at some deviations on the theme. And I want to acknowledge Mike Sag, who helped me put together this first case. A 30-year-old white man diagnosed on routine insurance examination. His past medical history is remarkable for hypertension, diet controlled, no medications understands treatment issues, and wants to begin therapy if you think it's appropriate. His viral load is 30,000. His CD4 count is 650. And the question for all of you is, would you recommend starting therapy? Yes, no, or not sure? So 80% said yes, 15% no, a few not sure. It's interesting. I think all of us can reflect upon these same types of questions being asked over the last five years and realize how the bars have shifted in the last years. So the overwhelming majority of people would recommend therapy for this patient who's asymptomatic with high T cells and a relatively low viral load. So for those of you who would recommend therapy, which is almost all of you, which factor has the greatest impact on your decision? And I know everybody likes to yell and scream. There's no one factor. But I'm asking you to tell me what is the factor that you think is most compelling to start someone like this on therapy. Your understanding of viral dynamics, the association of inflammation with ongoing viral replication, randomized control trial data, cohort data, 
irreversible damage and public health factors such as reducing the risk of transmission. There's a lot of muttering going up on, on the <laughs> panel. Okay, great. So 40% public health factors, 30% inflammation, and then a smattering of others. Anyone on the panel want to chime in? Is there something that you find particular? Amy, maybe you could go first. Tell me what you find the most compelling. Well, one comment I would make is that cohort data is really not separate from inflammation because the analyses that was conducted in, in most cases was really observational data analysis that showed the markers of inflammation were associated with these factors. And I would say actually the strongest evidence is the coupling of that data with hard clinical outcomes suggesting that people are at increased risk for a number of non-AIDS conditions and that that risk is modified at least in some cases when you can bring down the viral load and maintain the CD4. So is that what you feel would be the most compelling reason? Is well, of course, public health is a, a major. I'm not sure you can really weigh those. But in terms of the individual patient decision, I think those are the driving factors. I think with respect to public health, you know, it's undeniable that that's important as well. Right. Other comments? Well, I'm a, liver, I'm a liver doctor. So I've spent the last 15 years trying to remember what is the du jour CD4 and the du jour HIV viral load. I'm from San Francisco, and it's number six, and I don't have to think about it anymore. You just have to be positive. You have to be treated. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, so we'll talk a little bit about some of this data. Amy? If I, if I can just add, I'm, it may be that treating the HIV with respect to the non-HIV conditions is more important than the other medications we give them for those conditions in some cases. So you know, there's really two reasons. No, I, I think that's a very important point. And I think everybody agrees. And that was, I liked the discussion earlier about um, the Betty's comments about patients who are, don't want to take it because of alcohol or because of drugs. They don't want to take their antiretrovirals. Antiretroviral therapy seems to trump everything. Connie? Did you... Well, I was just lamenting the fact that you didn't have an all of the above. Because I think all of these are compelling reasons to start antiretroviral therapy. This is an infectious disease. We know a lot about viral dynamics and what antiretroviral therapy does. We know about the association of inflammation. The cohort data and randomized controlled trial data support treatment in the same directions. And without treatment, you do have irreversible damage and a public health risk. So I think all of those reasons are important. That's why I said the greatest impact to try to get people to pin them down. So let me give you case 1B, just basically changing the dynamic a little bit. Same 30-year-old man, uh, diagnosed in this case not on insurance exam, but on admission to jail for disorderly conduct. It's more like the kinds of patients I see. Past medical history remarkable for hypertension, diet controlled, and paranoid schizophrenia. And doesn't take any medications and doesn't want to. You convince him to take antipsychotic medications, or at least Glenn did. His viral load is 30,000. At what CD4 count would you recommend starting therapy? So in this case, he's told you he doesn't want to be on therapy. The question is, at which point are you going to attempt to force the issue? Less than 50, less than 200, less than 350, less than 500. Everybody, greater than 500, just like the other patient. Or I wouldn't recommend therapy at all for this patient. Go ahead and vote.
Okay, so we've got this nice bell-shaped curve where about a quarter, say less than 350, a third or so, say less than 500, and some everybody, regardless of the clinical situation. Glenn, you see these people all the time. Yeah, I think they should all start immediately, and I'll tell you why. The average patient, to get them to the place where they're adherent, takes maybe one or two rounds. My patients, it takes a lot of rounds to get them to where they're adherent. You've got to work with them for a long time. And you'd prefer it if you start early so that when it starts to really count down around 200 T-cells, when they've come in and out of therapy 10 times, that you finally get them used to the idea that they need to take their medicines. It's, it really is a process of practice and a practice effect and a process of building a relationship with somebody over several years. And they're not going to... They're not going to, if you wait till 50 T cells when they screw up, they're dead. If you wait till 200 T cells when they screw up, they've had their first OI. If you wait till 350 T cells when they screw up, they're at 200 T cells. But if you start as soon as you can, which often is 50 T cells, unfortunately. Um, but if you start as soon as you can, you have more, you have more rounds with them because they, they come into care, they go out of care. They're doing great. They stop the antipsychotics. They get another fight. They're in jail for a year. They come back to you. They get started on narcotics by some pain clinic and they disappear for a while and they come back to you. So I start early. I've always been an early treatment thing, early treatment person because my particular population of patients, it's all about building changed behavior, a relationship with healthcare, a, re, a, a, a kind of reassessment of the relationship between them and the providers in the clinic. That takes a lot, a lot of time for a lot of our patients. Our patients often have come from disadvantaged backgrounds and when they see fat, bald, bearded white guys, they have an automatic uh, conditioned negative response and I have to decondition them to that, to that over time. So in this patient who says he doesn't really want to start anything, what you're talking about isn't necessarily writing a prescription that day, but with the idea that, no, you are ready to start, now I'm going to start talking to you about how to do that. Yeah, and also, uh, often if you say, if, you, if when people say they don't want to take medicine, they don't want to do this, they don't want to do that, they're, they're really talking about how they feel. They don't feel like taking medicine. They don't feel like accepting the diagnosis. They don't feel like acknowledging this. And that form of denial actually can sometimes be overcome in your first round with them. They say, yeah, you don't feel like it, but, you know, these medicines, over time, you f you'll feel worse if you don't take them and feel better if you do. And at first, they're going to give you side effects. And finding exactly the right medicine for you might take several medicines because the first ones I give you could give you all kinds of trouble. And we're going to struggle through that together. And we might as well get going on the work. And I noticed that one of the things that people want to do is they want to, you know, if, you're, if your Alzheimer's grandfather wants to drive the car, you want to tell him he can't drive the car. It's not the way to do it. What you say is, you loan the car to Pete. He doesn't know who Pete is. But he does, he is the kind of person who would loan his car. If you drive the car around the back and park at the neighbor's lot, he looks out the window, the car isn't there, he loaned it to Pete, you'll drive the car later. And ten minutes later, he says, when's that ice cream coming? He's forgotten what he was looking for. And that form of distraction is very useful with schizophrenic patients who walk in like this. Sometimes what you want to do is not talk about whether they should take medicine or shouldn't take medicine, but move the conversation immediately to what kind of medicine should they take. And that often finesses this issue of whether or not they're going to take medicine and you know, they, by, the time you're, by the time you're done with the session, you're, you're saying, so next week when you come, we're going to do this, and then the week after that, we're going to do this. We get some labs today, and you see if they come the next week. And if they do, they're ready. They voted with their feet. If they don't come the next week, they're not ready. 
because they voted with their feet. And, you know, but they'll right. show back up and you want to have the conversation as far down the road as you can get. So that's right. my view of it. So, so let me just walk briefly through some of the data that supports the rationale that you all voted on for why we talk about early therapy. So there's the issue of the biology with the viral dynamics. I won't go through this. You're all familiar with the very high levels of viral replication that occur on a regular basis. And more importantly, the association between this and inflammation and end organ disease, something that really has gotten a lot of attention of late, although it has been known for many, many years to be associated with HIV. And just the data showing the effects of inflammation on predicting mortality higher in HIV disease in the general population. And a lot of markers here that you're familiar with, standard markers that have been well validated to be associated with increased risk of things like cardiovascular events in HIV negative people like IL-6 and D-dimers that are clearly higher on therapy and decline, when, or higher off therapy and decline when initiating therapy. And then increasingly attention over the last several years to markers of monocyte activation, which may be major factors driving cardiovascular disease or the increased risk in patients with HIV, such as soluble CD14. Uh, and this is just data showing the effects on, in this case, T cell activation or cellular activation, not these soluble markers in people who are HIV positive and untreated versus those who are treated compared to controls. And one of the observations that's often made is the fact that our HIV positive patients who are treated with good viral suppression still generally have higher levels of inflammation than what we see in our HIV negative controls, which may be clinically relevant, even in the setting of good antiretroviral therapy. Uh, one of the things that I didn't list as the compelling reasons to start therapy, but I've always felt is probably the only reason we're having this discussion in people with CD4 counts of 650 is that therapy is now so much better tolerated and easier to take with such a low virologic failure rate in the current era. I think if we were still talking about comvivir and dinavir every eight hours on an empty stomach, we wouldn't be treating people today, despite what we know about transmission and about inflammation uh, with, with CD4s of 650. So I think this is a major factor. And then randomized control trials and cohort data. The randomized control trial data, as you're aware, there really is one study for less than 350, and that's the Haiti trial. Uh, and then there are several controlled uh, cohort studies particularly NA Accord and ART-CC. And NA Accord actually demonstrated a decreased all-cause mortality in those who started between 350 and 500 versus less than 350, and those with greater than 500 versus less than 500. Again, not a randomized control trial, but one of several studies that support perhaps earlier therapy. Uh, and then we have one large randomized control trial that is underway that you're aware of. That's the START study. Uh, and that's looking at people with higher T cells, starting at over 500, looking at uh, multiple sort of composite endpoint, not just progression dates and death, but the development of other major complications like cardiovascular events, non-AIDS-related malignancies. And that data will be coming, um, although it's not going to be able to address what was the most common reason people said that they felt strongly about starting early, and that's the public health perspective, because that study won't be able to address that benefit associated with early therapy. The irreversible damage as well, and this is the data with CD4s from one cohort. There are many others that have looked at this exact same thing in the same way, showing that where you start, whether it's less than 200, 200 to 350, or greater than 350, predicts where you're going to end up. And there's at least some data that suggests that where you end up, even if your T cells are pretty high, matters with regards to risk 
for many non-AIDS-related events. And it's assumed that this is at least in part an irreversible complication of ongoing, ongoing HIV viremia and loss of CD4s. And the same thing has been seen now in many studies looking at neurocognitive deficits, showing that the strongest predictor of who has neurocognitive deficits on effective antiretroviral therapy is the CD4 nadir, suggesting that it's the duration of infection and ongoing viremia and probably, probably events that are occurring in the central nervous system that are causing irreversible damage to the brain. Uh, at least that's one of the potential hypotheses. And both of these consequences of allowing the disease to progress, the irreversible damage, argue for earlier therapy. And then the public health issue that, again, 40% found most compelling. Um, we know that people who are unaware of their status are disproportionately driving the epidemic. This is one of several studies of the 20 or so percent of people infected and don't know it are thought to be accounting for more than half of the new infections. And we now have this large randomized controlled trial, HPTN052, that demonstrated that those who initiated therapy with between 350 and 550 T cells were 96% less likely to transmit to their uninfected partner than those who waited until they met sort of the country criteria for starting therapy, usually of less than 250, or developing symptomatic disease. As you know, this translated to 27 transmissions in the deferred therapy group versus one in the early therapy group. And that one person was on study for probably on the order of about a month, probably before therapy had a, a full effect of reducing viral load. So there is a, a major public health difference associated with it. And when we look at the DHHS guidelines and you look at how the strength of recommendation has evolved over the last several years, I think it was really the availability of this study that increased the strength of the recommendation for treating everyone. Even though it was always thought that everybody should be advised that therapy is a viable option for all the reasons discussed, I think this is what put a lot of people over the top. And then this is Mike Sag's comment, so I won't take credit for it, common sense, so at least common sense to him. And the issue is, you know, at some point we realize we're dancing on the head of a pin a bit as far as when to start therapy. Since we anticipate our patients, you know, based on the data Amy described, that our patients are going to lead relatively normal lifespans, 30, 40 years, and the time from somebody with 650 T cells to getting to less than 500 or less than 350 is a relatively small period of time, obviously variable from patient to patient in the context of a 40-year sort of duration of therapy. And the question is, you know, how much do we gain and how much do we lose? How much actual harm is done? by waiting these five years, and you could argue you have this ongoing destruction of lymphoid tissue, the effects on the brain, the effects on the cardiovascular system, maybe increased aging, accelerated cognitive decline. Some of these are unknown, and it's difficult to understand how a few years of ongoing viremia may influence a given individual, but across the population, there's always the risk, uh, and it's all about reducing the amount of time they're on therapy from 40 years to 35 years, or maybe even, we're talking about even less than that, maybe a year or two. So in conclusion, I think the balance of the data start, supports starting therapy, as 80% of the people in this room would recommend. But it isn't, as Connie pointed out, because of any one thing. We don't have one randomized control trial that shows unequivocally, using clinical endpoints, that starting at over 500 is better than starting at less than 500. But if you put all of this together, 
everything seems to favor earlier therapy. And then add on top of that the fact that current therapy is so easy to take, for most people extremely well tolerated and highly efficacious, that it's hard to justify delaying therapy, especially if you then add on the fact that you may have a significant impact on the public good. So these are the guys. Honey. Sorry to interrupt. Please. The, the HPTN052 study, in fact, did demonstrate a significant reduction in hard clinical endpoints in patients who started therapy earlier. So that wasn't the primary endpoint of the study. The primary endpoint was the reduction in transmission. But clinical events, primarily driven by pulmonary and extrapulmonary tuberculosis, but other events as well, were significantly reduced in patients who started therapy earlier. That's true. That's true. So these are the current US guidelines that people refer to the most, the DHHS and the IASUSA guidelines. And they now reflect this trend towards recommending treatment for everybody. We've always suggested treatment, treating select populations, regardless of CD4, such as pregnancy, HIV-associated nephropathy, hepatitis B. Um, but now even asymptomatic people with over 500 CD4 cells, it's currently recommended for all of the reasons we talked about. So let me briefly talk about a different scenario, because there's one issue about when to start, and there's another one perhaps about how urgently we need to start. Um, this is a 34-year-old woman diagnosed with TB. As part of the evaluation, she was found to be HIV positive. Her CD4 count is 82. Her viral load is 76,000. No other significant medical conditions. She started on four-drug anti-TB therapy, including INH and rifibutin, in anticipation of her starting antiretrovirals. Her virus is wild-type by genotype. And obviously, there's no discussion here about whether she needs to be on therapy or not. She has very low T cells. So the question in this case isn't whether she needs to be on treatment. It's when should she start, and meaning how urgently. So would you start her on HIV therapy immediately, coincident with TB treatment, within two weeks of TB treatment, within two to four weeks, within four to eight weeks, between eight weeks and nine months, after she's finished her TB regimen, or I don't know. Go ahead and vote. Okay, great. Well, there's no question the trend is to treat early. And that, in general sense, is clearly the right answer. Connie, do you have any comments? So I think the, for my purposes, given her CD4 count, the right answer is probably number two within two weeks. Um, I th don't think any of the top three are wrong answers. But it does depend a little bit on the clinical situation with the patient. And the data from three, four randomized clinical trials now clearly show that early therapy in the context of TB is life-saving and reduces disease progression and the occurrence of new or other opportunistic infections. The issue of whether you do it coincident with TB therapy, most people have recommended that you start TB therapy first, get them used to taking the four drugs for anti-tuberculosis therapy, and make sure that they're stable on that regimen before starting antiretroviral therapy. Uh, the worry about having iris in the context of antiretroviral therapy does not preclude you from starting therapy. You just need to be aware that the risk is there, and you need to monitor for it and treat for it. 
most of the studies have shown that patients don't die a virus. They have a higher risk of virus when starting anti-retroviral therapy earlier, but they don't die of their iris disease. They die of their tuberculosis disease. So I would have answered number two, and the issue of whether it's two to four or two weeks really is dependent on the CD4 count because the lower the CD4 count, the more urgency there is in starting therapy earlier to prevent more opportunistic infections and to prevent morbidity and mortality associated with both a new OI and with the underlying TB disease. So I bring this case up as an opportunity to talk about some of the new data and the new guidelines for TB, but also that there are other complications of HIV in which the timing of treatment is specifically defined, at least in the guidelines. Um, so antiretrovirals are considered appropriate within the first two weeks for people who have an, a complication in which HIV therapy antiretrovirals are the treatment. So for example, HIV-associated dementia, cryptosporidium, microsporidium, PML. Now we don't have randomized controlled data showing that two weeks is better than four weeks is better than eight, but again, common sense would certainly support the fact that that's the treatment and you want to treat the complication, so you need to do it right away. For OIs, we have very good data for PCP, suggesting that therapy should be initiated within the first two weeks. A little bit less data for some of the other opportunistic infections. And then we have growing consensus, I think, for cryptomeningitis from now several studies, suggesting that deferring therapy may be the appropriate thing to do because of concerns about iris. And in that setting, unlike with TB, it can be more uh, severe. And then for tuberculosis, again, these guidelines are really driven by the data from these key studies where less than 50 clearly within two weeks was beneficial versus even waiting to eight weeks. Uh, and then the guidelines, the, result, the recommendations get a little bit softer after that. Two to four weeks for severe symptoms with perhaps 50 to 200 T cells or greater than 200. Eight to 12 weeks for people with mild symptoms with 50 to 500, greater than 500. Uh, and for meningitis, there's data showing that you don't derive a lot of benefit by starting early, and there is more in the way of complications. So tuberculosis, meningitis, maybe deferring a little bit longer is appropriate. Um, again, all of these decisions need to be made based upon the specific patient. So this is the patient, 30-year-old white man diagnosed on routine insurance exam, past medical history with hypertension, diet, controlled. Same patient we talked about at the very beginning no medications, understands treatment issues, wants to begin therapy if you think it's appropriate. His viral load is 30,000, CD4 is 650. The question is, what would people do now after this discussion? Would they start, would they not, or are they not sure? I think this is more a test for me and the panel than it is for all of you. So. <laughs> So we hopefully we made an effective case for the 20% that weren't sure or didn't want to start right away. Great. Let's talk a little bit about the what to start option. So a 49-year-old asymptomatic man presents to your clinic after recently being diagnosed with HIV. Excuse me. Has a history of hypertension, a creatinine clearance of about 75. He's immune to hepatitis B and Hep C antibody negative. CD4 cells are about 750. Viral load 30 to 50,000. Not anxious to start therapy, but willing to do so if you think it's necessary. So I leave here in the gray box the key information to remind you of what you're voting on. So I've added here that he's HLA-B5701 negative in case you care. And we did do a genotype, because that's the standard of care. And his virus was wild type. 
So you encourage him to start, and he says he's definitely ready and has no specific concerns regarding his ability to adhere. It's fine with once or twice daily dosing if there's an advantage of one over the other. He doesn't care. And which would you recommend? Nucleosides with the boosted PI, with the Favarins, with Raltegravir, with Rilpivirine, with Elvitegravir Cobacistat in the fixed dose combination, or something else? Go ahead and vote. Okay, about half would use an efavirenz-based regimen and 15-ish percent a boosted PI and then some of the, some takers for raltegravir and elvitegravir cobacista. Kara, what would you do? Well, I think if we were following the guidelines, uh, we would go with uh, one, two, or three. Um, with, I think this patient has a lot of options and without adherence issues, um, I think, uh, a single pill once a day combination regimen would be appropriate for him. And in that case, I actually think that um, number four or five would also be reasonable to consider in him. So what would you recommend to him? He's got no comorbidity other than hypertension, yeah. and um, he's, he's happy with whatever you recommend. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I guess I would go with either um, four or five, and perhaps um, five given its uh, lower toxicity profile. Anyone else on the panel feel strongly? Betty? I mean, I, I think it's worthwhile to discuss with the patient what they think they want to deal with. And one of, one of the ways of doing that is trying to decide or talk about what side effects they are willing to deal with. Because I think we all know that when we give antiretrovirals, there are going to be side effects. And whether one patient says, okay, the CNS things are not too dis disabling for me versus the concern about taking you know, certain medications with food and, and a high-fat diet like recovery needs to be done. Um, and then the twice a day for raltegavir may or may not be a problem for some patients. The creatinine clearance, since you have that in there of 75, make, may make some people a little bit more mindful of using tenofovir, although we know that the risk of renal failure from tenofovir is probably less than 1% in, in most cases. And if they don't have any um, renal risk factors, it's probably okay to use. Uh, L-vitegavir and cobacistat, you know, some people are more concerned about the changes in serum creatinine with the cobacistat. And therefore, we just need to know that when you give cobacistat or stribit, you might see a, a 0.14 average increase in serum creatinine as much as maybe up to uh, 0.14 up to about 0.4, and then to be able to differentiate that from tenofovir-induced toxicity. So it's not like you you couldn't use any of these. You probably could, depending on what the patient is willing to do once a day or twice a day regimen, and whether you think they have any comorbidities, which they don't seem to have in terms of the creatinine clearance. Um, but he does have some chronic kidney disease. He does right. have some. I lied about him not having any comorbidity okay. except hypertension. So he okay. is borderline. I, I, I have to agree. You know, I think that people <laughs> underestimate how much side effects are the key to getting people to take their medicines. And if all things are equal, try to make the side effects work for you rather than against you. And I, I think that you can't emphasize that enough when you're thinking about patients. That 
we, we talk about clinical trials data and a slight advantage of this regimen over that regimen in a clinical trial. Well, none of my patients get in clinical trials. Those clinical trials data represent a small group of people who come to every visit, take every pill, are highly, highly um, compliant with what we do. That's why we put, pick them to be in our trial. Mm -hmm. So the clinical trials data is not really representative of the real world. It's representative of the subjects we put into trials. In the real world, patients want medicines that won't make them feel bad. And you have to figure out what kinds of feeling bad really matter to people more than others. So I, Betty, I, you, were gonna, you had another sorry, point. I'm sorry. No, you keep going. That's, I just wanted to reinforce I, what I Betty totally said. I totally agree. But I also want to say that even though in this person we don't have viral load that would detract from using repervirine, we know that in patients with very high viral loads greater than 100,000, the data is not as good for a repervirine-based regimen than a favorance. But I, but I have to bring up the, some scenarios about side effects. I mean, we just did education for a person who was a painter, who was up on the ladder all the time, who was starting antiretroviral therapy. And he, after hearing all the different um, options, like Atripla or Boosted PI or Complera, he decided that he didn't want to take any food with his medications. He wanted to do it on an empty stomach. And he didn't care that he might get dizzy or drowsy and could fall off his ladder. He was willing to take that risk. But I think most of this is, is making sure that people can anticipate what the potential side effects are. And if they're willing to do that, then you go with what they want to do. So, so the same story now. But this patient is a smoker with multiple cardiovascular risk factors, in addition to his controlled hypertension and chronic kidney disease. Which would you recommend? Nukes with the boosted PI, efavirenz, raltegravir, rilpivirine, L-vitegravir, cobacistat, or something else? We're, again, not going to get into the details about the nukes right now. You can use whatever you want, except, of course, for number five, where it's only available with for FTC. So here about 35% efavirenz, 45%. So more going for raltegravir. Presumably, it's partly because it's lipid, more lipid neutral, um, and maybe some other benefits. Well, let me talk a little bit about a different patient, change the scenario a little bit. Now we're taking somebody who has actually fairly advanced disease with 50 cells and a viral load of 250,000 with those same options. Go ahead and vote. So the bars shifted up a little bit more towards a PI-based regimen. Any comments on how stage of disease and viral load might influence your decision and treatment here? Betty, you talked about rilpivirine. Not only is the data show that it, it is not as effective in people with over 100,000 viral loads, but now the package insert actually says it's not indicated for people with viral loads of over 100,000. Any thoughts about uh, any advantages other than for rilpivirine? of any of the other regimens based upon stage of disease or viral load? Amy, do you have any thoughts? Well, my, my main thought is, is actually to echo what Glenn was saying, that the most important thing clearly for this patient is to get on a stable regimen that suppresses their virus and maintains what CD4 they have left. And that's a two-way street. It's not just what I give them, it's what they choose to do with what I give them. And I think the most important issue here is not necessarily other than the repetitive point 
the trade-offs between the different antiretrovirals as it is the patient's buy-in to whatever regimen they're going to be participating in. Because if they don't participate, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think adherence is everything. And it, except for rilpivirine, these other regimens, there isn't any data showing there's a real difference based upon the stage of disease. One, one thing to think about in this guy now is that um, his renal disease, his subtle renal disease, now is probably HIV renal disease. Before, it probably wasn't HIV renal disease. It might be it's from something else. But now, it is HIV renal disease, more likely, because he's very advanced and his creatinine's falling. And I, I don't know that there, there's no data to suggest that renal disease from HIV is any worse than any other kind of renal disease. But I get nervous about tenofovir in those patients, since the one person that I really killed with tenofovir was a patient who had HIV-induced renal disease. So I, I, it, it makes me wonder if this would be a person where I would talk more about which nuke to use. And we're going to come back to that. Yeah, OK. Sorry. So that's OK. Uh, original story, this patient, T cells are 700, 750, viral load 30 to 50,000. But now his baseline genotype is a K103N. So I changed the options ever so slightly. I took efavirenz off the list, so as to not embarrass, embarrass anyone in the audience or anyone on the panel. <laughs> Go ahead and vote. Probably more worried about the panel than the audience. CPI versus Reltegravir. Kara, do you want to weigh in as to how you feel about this one? I like the options the audience yeah. chose. <laughs> um, so this patient is treatment naive. This is probably transmitted K103N resistance. Um, and uh, I would go with, um, I think, either option and going over the dosing frequency with the patient to see which would be preferred as well as the toxicities as discussed before. Yeah, I think one of the issues here always that troubles us, and we just don't know for sure, is whether there couldn't have been a 184V transmitted as well, and whether that means we should be really cautious about using a regimen that includes drugs with low genetic barriers like integrase inhibitors. Uh, and that's why I think, I suspect, the audience was leaning more and more towards a boosted PI, although we simply don't have the data. Certainly, raltegravir and relpivirine and elvitegravir still should be active against this virus, if it is the only resistant virus in the viral population. So the, the other thing that this makes me think about now, one, one possibility is a transmitted, uh, transmitted resistance. And I don't know this patient very well, except what he's told me. But sometimes patients are not, how can I put this, 100% forthcoming about their history or experiences. And as soon as I wonder, how did this guy get a K103? And what's he not telling me? I like, I'm moving up to PIs where I'm not much less worried about resistance and uh, mistakes and intermittent taking of medicines. Now, it could be a transmitted K103, but it could also be that he's not as forthcoming. Not that anybody has ever had a patient like that in my yeah. setting, but some patients have come in with multiple, multiple, multiple drug resistance, very high rates. I've never taken any antivirals. You know, it's, I mean, it's always in the differential. Yes. So uh, these are the factors that have actually been very nicely outlined by the panel of the key issues related to what to start. Um, and then since the introduction of therapy, it's always been nukes and a third drug. So there's been interest in developing nukes sparing type regimens. But at least right now, all of the preferred and alternative regimens continue to be nukes and a third drug.
And we have the PI data showing that atazanavir, ritonavir, and darunavir, ritonavir were at least as effective as lopinavir, but better tolerated. And that's why they're now considered the preferred boosted PIs. We have data showing that atazanavir, ritonavir is as good as efavirenz. So we have very comparable efficacy with boosted PIs, at least some of the preferred ones, versus NNRTIs. Uh, we have the Startmerk study showing raltegravir, again, was at least as good as efavirenz. We know it's twice a day, but is considerably better tolerated than efavirenz. So we have these usual trade-offs. Mostly convenience and tolerability has been described. And then we have the data, and I'm going through this quickly because this isn't new data, and a lot of it was already discussed. This is the data from Echo and Thrive with Ropivirine versus efavirenz, showing very similar virologic responses until you look closely. And then you see that the virologic failure rate is a little bit higher in those who received Ropivirine, here is TMC278, versus efavirenz. And this was balanced by the fact that more people who received efavirenz had to discontinue therapy because of adverse events. And that's why the overall outcomes were the same, but from a virologic efficacy perspective, there was clearly a difference. And most of that difference was seen in the people with viral loads of over 100,000. And that, along with another study that showed similar results, led to the change in the package insert. Uh, this is the new data from the quad. I suspect most of you have heard about this as well. It was approved a little over six months ago, I would say. Uh, this is the head-to-head -head comparison of L-vitegravir cobacistat in the fixed-dose combination versus efavirenz or a boosted PI atazanavir. As you recall, the population included mostly men and people with relatively early stages of disease, because that's who's starting therapy now, or people with earlier stages of disease. CD4 counts in the 350-plus range. Very high rates of virologic response. Here's the head-to-head -head comparison with efavirenz with very rare virologic failure. Big differences, again, tolerability, the usual CNS toxicity and rash with the favorins, and a little bit more nausea with the quad versus the favorins. And this is the data with boosted atazanavir showing, again, incredibly high rates of virologic response with non-inferiority for the new drug compared to the boosted PI. From a tolerability perspective, it was almost overlapping with the exception of more ocular ictris, of course, with atazanavir ritonavir. From a lipids perspective, efavirenz had a greater effect on total cholesterol in LDL as well as HDL than the quad pill. So the total cholesterol HDL ratio was not affected or not different between the two. And almost no difference in the changes in lipids between the quad and boosted atazanavir with the exception of more hypertriglyceridemia. And then this creatinine issue. Um, we know that tenofovir is associated with some kidney disease, particularly in people with underlying chronic kidney disease. We also know that cobacistat has this effect on renal tubular handling of creatinine. And Cardiff says this artifactual increase that Betty was referring to that occurs in the first two weeks. It's not actually a, a nephrotoxic effect. It's simply an artifact of the way the renal tubular tubules handle creatinine. So the challenge here is to figure out a new set point, if you will, to be able to define whether there's any real change in renal function associated with perhaps tenofovir or the combination of cobacestat and tenofovir uh, and not and really ignore the part that is just an artifact. And again, this has been seen here. It's been seen in some of the earlier studies as well. So it's just something for people to really be aware of. And there is some suggestion that cobacestat along with tenofovir may be associated with some increase in nephrotoxicity, recognizing that overall the risk is very, very low. 
So the question for all of you now is to switch to the nucleoside question. Which single factor has the greatest influence on nucleoside choice? I didn't ask you to make those decisions earlier. So is it the efficacy data? Is it your concerns about renal disease? And this is in people without significant renal disease. Cardiovascular concerns, availability as part of a fixed dose combination, guideline recommendations, or other. Go ahead and vote. Okay, so about a third availability of fixed dose combinations. I'm not too surprised about that. And then efficacy and renal guidelines. So a little bit of everything. Anyone on the panel? Again, all of these probably apply. Well, let me go ahead because of time. So everyone is aware that we had a head-to-head -head comparison in 5202, which compared tenofovir to abacavir, blinded, with either atazanavir, ritonavir, or efavirenz. And in the people who had viral loads of over 100,000, there was over a two-fold increased risk of virologic failure if you received abacavir than tenofovir FTC regardless. So when people commented on the efficacy, I think they were thinking specifically of this particular study. And this is reflected in all of the guidelines, that there may be a difference. I think it's important to note that this was seen in the study with um, with atazanavir, ritonavir, and efavirenz, and those who had viral loads of over 100,000. In follow-up of those who had viral loads of less than 100,000, there was absolutely no difference seen whatsoever. So it does behave differently depending on your viral load. It may also depend a little bit on the third drug. And the first hint of this was another head-to-head -head comparison, only where the third drug was lopinavir, ritonavir, where they really didn't see any difference, regardless of viral load between abacavir, 3TC, and tenofovir FTC. And it was hard to know what the relevance of this was since lopinavir ritonavir is not one of the preferred boosted PIs. Uh, and there was at least a hint that some of the failures may have occurred in people with higher viral loads with abacavir, 3TC. But I'm not going to talk about the new data for unapproved drugs. But as you know, the FDA is currently reviewing a new integrase inhibitor, dolutegravir, that will be available as a fixed dose combination with abacavir, 3TC. And at least the data that's available from their phase three trials suggests that there isn't a difference based on viral load and response. So again, we could quibble over some of the data, but the bottom line is the third drug may be relevant. And this concern about efficacy in the context of a backer three TC to not for FTC may not apply when we start looking at newer drugs like dolutegravir. And the concerns are mixed. We've got concerns about a backer three TC being associated with increased cardiovascular risks and tenofovir with renal disease and bone mineral density. These are the DHHS guidelines. They haven't changed dramatically uh, with the preferred options continuing to be efavirenz, atazanavir, ritonavir, darunavir, or raltegravir twice a day, all with tenofovir FTC with a variety of alternatives, all of which may be perfectly reasonable for a given patient. The IS-USA guidelines that came out last summer actually did change in that I think they acknowledged that abacavir 3TC may be a better option for select patients, perhaps those with chronic kidney disease. Uh, and that at least the data from 5202 suggested that in the viral loads of less than 100,000, it appeared to be just as good when used with atazanavir, ritonavir, or efavirenz. So they actually broadened the preferred options to include an alternative nucleoside regimen, at least in those people with viral loads of less than 100,000. And again, these will all evolve as new data becomes available. Right now, the quad and both of them would be considered an alternative. But it's a relatively new drug, and 96-week data has recently become available. Comment? 
Bilateral density problems or renal disease. Or, and maybe added to that, let's throw in a mutation against uh, 3TC and, and emtricitabine. So what I'd really like, uh, because I've, I've called the uh, UC San Francisco warm line a few times, and... Uh, Talk to Betty. <laughs> we cry together. Uh, but I'd just like, like a, you know, some comments about uh, NRTI-free or single NRTI regimens, and what do, you th what do you combine with them when you can't do two NRTIs? Fair enough. Anyone want to make any comment on nuke-sparing type regimens? Um, I don't know. Maybe Connie would be a better... <laughs> No, I think for the most part, the studies that have attempted to address the nucleoside-sparing regimens, completely nucleoside-sparing regimens, have actually shown that they don't do as well. Um, that may be somewhat dependent on the drugs that are used in the regimens. So most guidelines and most of the studies now really do include some nucleoside component to them. I presume you're going to talk about the options trial at some point in your... I'm actually not, because we're not talking about treatment experience. Okay, so, so in treatment experienced populations, there were data from an AIDS clinical trials group study that were just presented at CROI, which showed that in treatment experienced populations where your decision making is being driven by the availability of phenotypic and genotypic resistance testing that you can derive a regimen without nucleosides that does just as well as one that retains a nucleoside. But that may be a different conversation when you're talking about highly treatment experienced patients. So I think for the most part people do wish to include an NRTI <coughs> component to the regimen. The question of which ones to use when you're raising scenarios like you've just done, when you have fairly clear contraindications to one or more of the nucleosides, that's a much harder decision-making process. There's a lot of discussion about retaining 3TC or lamivudine in the regimen despite having an M184V mutation because you can hypersensitize the virus with the use of zidovudine or some of the other compounds. So I think there's a, a group of experts who would recommend that. I think if you can't use tenofovir and you can't use abacavir for the reasons that you've just cited, I see nothing wrong with a zidovudine 3TC regimen. It's a fixed dose combination. It's reasonably well tolerated once patients are acclimatized to that regimen. And there may be some benefit of having a zidovudine in the combination with 3TC despite the 184V mutation. I think all of us have gotten away from the dideoxynucleosides if we can avoid using them. No one really uses DDC or D4T any longer, but dideoxyinosine or DDI still may play a role in some of these uh, individual cases where you can't use other nucleosides. It's not necessarily a bad NRTI and can be used safely in some instances. So I think there are other NRTIs there besides abacavir and tenofovir, and we usually will use them in combinations in individuals who fit into the scenarios that you mentioned. And the only thing I would add, because this does come up, fortunately not too often, but it's a real scenario, is if you, you know, unfortunately we don't have great data for a lot of these options, but there is a lot of data with maintenance therapy with boosted PIs and people who don't have PI resistance. 
So most of us aren't using that first line. It's extensively used in Europe for people who are suppressed, um, and then they drop the nucleosides. And most of those patients remain suppressed, and the ones that don't do not select for resistance and resuppress when nucleosides are re-added. So if you looked at the largest data sets, that might be one option to consider. And then hopefully, pretty soon, I think we're going to get some data from an international study, a large phase three trial of darunavir, ritonavir, raltegravir, to finally address this issue. Well, that's what darunavir, ritonavir, and raltegravir is. So, so we will have phase three data from that. Right now, as Connie points out, most of the smaller studies look like they're, they're not as responding as well as we would have hoped. But the phase three trial will answer the question. I'm going to move ahead because I actually have another case if Connie will let me do it. <laughs> uh, switching, but that's a really great question. I actually think it may come up even as one of the choices in this, so we can spare ourselves the discussion in this case. So switching for toxicity, because this is often a problem. So 45-year-old African-American woman presents to your clinic having been diagnosed with HIV, severe thrush, onychomycosis, stable on fluconazole. History of mild depression, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia on an ACE, metformin, and atorvastatin. Sounds crazy, but it's real, and it's polypharmacy, to say the least. Um, hepatitis B surface antigen and C antibody negative. Mild transaminase elevation, a creatinine clearance of about 70, but stable. Hemoglobin A1C of 7, uh, some 3 plus proteinuria, CD4 78, viral load of 219,000, a wild type genotype. Ready to start therapy, fortunately. Um, antiretrovirals have recommended with no specific concerns regarding the adverse events, but would prefer a simple regimen. So not scared off by any of the things you talked about, CNS toxicity or otherwise, but would prefer something simple if possible. So which would you choose? And again, we're here focusing on the third drug. Nukes in a boosted PI, nukes in efavirenz, rilpivirine, raltegravir, elvitegravir, cobacistat. Again, in this case, it would need to be with Tanoff or FTC. And again, the patient characteristics are summarized in gray at the bottom. Go ahead and vote. So about half want raltegravir and a quarter of boosted PI. Let me go ahead because of time. The patient starts Sinopir FTC efavirenz, trimethoprim sulfa, and continues the other meds. At two months, the CD4 is 190, HIV RNA is 220,000, things are looking pretty good. But the patient states that they've had increasing depression and persistent neurologic symptoms that they think are associated with efavirenz. And they were warned about all of this, but it's bothering them. Creatinine clearance is stable at about 70, and she's seeing psychiatry and is now on antidepressants. So the question is, what would you do? No change for now. Switch to tenofovir FTC, rilpivirine, cobacistat elvitegravir, a boosted PI, raltegravir, or something else. And those of you who voted for raltegravir and a boosted PI are saying, I wouldn't have started on efavirenz in the first place. <laughs> but go ahead and vote. So about half are now going to switch to a raltegravir-based regimen, a quarter to tenofovir and a boosted PI. Anyone on the panel? I just want to point out that there's a number of cases of raltegravir-induced depression that have been described. And um, it's not gotten much press, but it does cause depression in some people. 
um, and it's not it's certainly not anywhere near as common as other uh, uh, antivirals like Favarin's but it, it might be an issue if all things but, are otherwise equal right in the case uh, if all things are otherwise issue I I'm I just it's a weird thing you know it's it's just bad luck for me but I've had a couple of raltegravir patients who, who did really badly on raltegravir and they were switched because of depression because so of their depression so we switched so. them again and they, did, and they did much better so we probably all have seen it. We just don't ask our patients if they're depressed like you do. <coughs> well, nobody, people send them to me because they're yeah. depressed, you know, <laughs> not taking their medicine. So I get a good referral population. Okay. So all of these are certainly reasonable, including this, you know, the approval for the quad is a creatinine clearance of greater than or equal to 70. So it's close, and it would probably make people worry a little bit because you know the creatinine is going to go up a little bit, creatinine clearance is going to go down. So it's going to be a little close. But it's, it's at least within the range of something that could be used as an option. What do you think, this is a question from the panel, <clears throat> what do you think about the idea that now you're starting a person whose, whose viral load was originally very high, now it's low, but we didn't do that in the trial when we were looking at, uh, we were looking at um, recovering. What do we think about that? Yeah, so that's a good question. So there's two issues with rolpiparine as an option. One, we have the head-to-head -head comparison with the Favarins that showed there was less CNS toxicity. So that's a good thing. It keeps things simple, no more complicated, or, I mean, acid-reducing agents and dietary restrictions aside. So the question with rolpiparine is going to be twofold. One of it is the ones that came up during Betty's talk, and that's, you know, the issue of the induction of the Favarins and the effect on rolpiparine. And the other one is the one you bring up, Glenn as to whether somebody who had a high viral load at baseline and other viral load is on their way down, is the high viral load now relevant anymore for rolpivirine? And, and I don't think we have the data for the switch we're talking about now. There was a study where they switched boosted PIs to rolpivirine and showed a good virologic, maintained virologic response, and they broke it down based upon baseline viral load, and it, was, it didn't matter what the viral load was at baseline. So I think from a biology perspective, it probably isn't so relevant where they started as where they are at the time of the switch. But we have some limitations of the data. But the question that came up when Betty was talking about this, we actually have a little bit of data. Uh, these were about 49 patients who were on efavirenz and were looking to switch to rolpivirine. All of them remained suppressed. Now I think there's data out to maybe 48 weeks. The concern about levels, indeed, it did take a few extra weeks for the person to get into what was considered to be a therapeutic range with rolpivirine. Um, but efavirenz levels persisted so long, as we know they do, that either these two weeks were not important because the patients were already suppressed, or efavirenz sort of covered this period of time that translated into good suppression. The caveat here is you may remember in this particular study that these people had to be suppressed for, I think, a minimum of six months, and on average it was 18 months. So it's a little bit different than the patient I'm describing. And I don't think we have data other than in our clinics for patients who are on their way down and not yet fully suppressed, which is probably the scenario where we'd more commonly consider this. And there's a setting where we just simply don't have as much data. So the patient did switch ultimately to a boosted PI and continued their other meds. After four months, neurologic symptoms resolved, CD4 count is 250, viral load's undetectable. The patient's creatinine clearance has declined. They're now off trimethoprim sulfa, but their creatinine clearance is now persistently in the 40 to 45 range with no other change in their labs. Urine has no glucosuria or proteinuria. Uh, hemoglobin A1C is negative. Um, I'm sorry, the HLA P5701 is negative. And again, remember the patient's baseline CD4 and viral load. 
So the question is, what would you do with the antiretrovirals? No change for now. <clears throat> dose reduced to NOPR FTC. Switch to NOPR FTC to a Bacavir plus dose adjusted 3TC for a creatinine clearance of less than 50. Switch atazanavir to an alternative third drug or switch to nucleoside sparing regimen. And I just want to remind you about the characteristics. It's an African-American woman with diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and chronic kidney disease. That might influence some people's decision or their thinking. So go ahead and vote. And you see all of the choices listed here, including a nuke sparing regimen. Okay, great. So 70% would switch to a Bacavir 3TC. Anyone on the panel? Amy, do you want to comment on this? No comment? So the issue being, are we concerned about the multiple cardiovascular risk factors using a Bacavir 3TC? And you're saying you're not convinced that the data is strong enough that it would I, influence I think, your decision in this particular case. Yes, I think the data is strong that HIV is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease. I think the data with respect to a Bacavir per se is somewhat contradictory and difficult to, to really interpret at this point. And ultimately, I think it's more important to suppress the virus. And if you can achieve that with medication. Without like knocking this. off the kidneys. Right, without knocking off the kidneys, exactly. Glenn? You know, I, I think that, again, <clears throat> you know, in, a, in an unconstrained environment, you could talk about a back of your cardiovascular risk. In this environment, we're talking about renal failure as a, as a possibility. And I don't think there's, I, don't, I think a back of your is a perfectly reasonable choice. And um, you could, I mean, you could certainly talk about other alternative regimens. But in those cases, I think we have even less data than we have about a back of ear and it's and it's iffy, you know. It's, I mean, it, I mean, maybe, but so things like nuke sparing were just limited yeah, yeah, in yeah, our data. You have less, you have less data about. I would also point out that renal disease is a huge risk factor for cardiovascular right. disease, and if we can avoid progressing renal disease, we've we've made a big step towards huge. Yeah, Marianne. So the patient has a metabolic syndrome. She has fatty liver, she has hyperlipidemia, she has diabetes, hypertension, so she's at high cardiovascular risk anyway. You're the only one who picked up on the transaminase <laughs> elevation. I was just going to say that it depends on whether you believe the meta-analysis that were done by the FDA. And I think there was one international meta-analysis, too, that looked at abacavir in terms of of causing myocardial infarctions, and neither one of them showed a major player in cardiovascular disease. Now, you can criticize the meta-analysis because they are trials where you wouldn't have patients with cardiovascular disease being enrolled, and so the data would, would reflect that data. But there's still very conflicting data, but I would agree that I would rather protect the kidneys if asked to do this versus giving them to not Yeah, so this is, I mean, this, we all have cases like this. This is a difficult balancing act, right, between the potential theoretical concerns about some toxicities, the real concerns about progressing comorbidities, and the key priority of maintaining virologic suppression. So this is the DAD study. Everybody is familiar with it at this point. Very good cohort demonstrating a, a highly significant increased risk for cardiovascular events, particularly amongst those who had lots of other cardiovascular risk factors, this patient, with the current or recent use of a Bacavir or a DDI, which is somewhat less relevant. Um, but it is one of several studies. 
There's the meta-analysis, which focuses on the treatment-naive trials, which has the limitations Betty mentioned. It's not a, it's not, and Glenn alluded to, it's not the population that we routinely treat. Um, and it has relatively shorter follow-up, less patient years of follow-up than this, but didn't see a hint of this. And the VA study, which arguably is probably more similar, kind of a cohort study, which also did not see a relationship. So I think the important thing to note is that there is the DAD study and some other data that suggests evacuator might be important in this setting. It's in the package insert. It gets discussed all the time. It may or may not be true, but the data is not 100%. And when considering it in the context of all of these other issues, we need to at least be aware of how good or how bad the data is. The other point that I was going to make is that tenofovir isn't the only drug that may be associated with renal disease. It turns out this was a study from Eurocida, and there's another recent cohort study that showed the exact same thing, that in addition to tenofovir's association, indinavir, which fortunately we don't use anymore, but also adazanavir ritonavir, which actually has some characteristics similar to indinavir in that it isn't as highly protein-bound. It's concentrated in the renal collecting system and is associated with perhaps some interstitial nephritis. It's definitely nephrolithiasis. Uh, that adazanavir ritonavir may also be. So it's not all about nucleosides when we're considering chronic kidney disease. There are other drugs that may also be playing a part here. Other non-ARVs as well. Indeed. And that was the other thing I wanted to just say. People should also review the other medications people are on and ask, are there any kidney toxins here that I could get rid of to preserve my ability to give the ARVs? Right. And, and getting back to that as well, when we presented this in the same course in San Francisco, people were yelling and screaming, did you get this patient off metformin right. that's now in renal failure? So you do need to constantly be looking at the other medications they're on. And this is just another study. This is 5202 that showed when you started people on tenofovir or abacavir with adazanavir, ritonavir, or fabrins, you saw an increase in renal function in the first two years in almost everybody except those who received tenofovir, FTC, and adazanavir. So there may also be some synergistic effect between boosted PIs, particularly maybe this one, and tenofovir. So again, the more information we have in a patient like this, the better equipped we are to make the tough decisions. So the patient actually was switched to a Bacavir 3TC plus Darunavir Ritonavir. Our feeling was renal function was probably the highest priority, maintaining viral suppression. We weren't going to take any chances. So we stopped all of the drugs that might be associated with it and agreed to sort of suck it up on the concerns about a Bacavir. Tolerated it well, uh, maintained viral suppression, creatinine clearance gradually increased to around 55 to 60 mils per minute. So the last question, well, the second to last question, what would you do now? Go to Disneyland, light up a cigar, tell the patient you're a genius, all is good with the world, and switch them to fixed-dose combination Bacavir 3TC. Switch a Bacavir 3TC back to Tanakh or FTC. One and two, one and three, one, two, and three, or something else. Go ahead and vote. Wow. A lot of Disneyland takers. Probably that's <laughs> unique to Los Angeles. For me, I don't smoke, so I'd have probably picked one and three. But I think one, two, and three would be a right answer as well. Sorry about all of the rest of you. So finally, coming back to the first question, which of the following has not been associated with increases in creatinine? Tenofovir, darunavir, ritonavir, adazanavir, ritonavir, tenofovir, FTC, cobacyst, adalvitegravir, all of them have been associated with increases in creatinine. Go ahead and vote. Oh, 
while we're doing that, let me just say that Disneyland can raise your blood pressure, <laughs> raise your blood sugar. <laughs> by, by the way, I'm increased stress. You're not talking about going to Disneyland with your patient, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's a common problem for me also. And, and thin out your pocketbook. Um, so actually, you know, I thought two was the right answer, but certainly I didn't show you any data to suggest that five was wrong either. But I'm not aware of any data showing darunavir, ritonavir is associated with an increase in uh, kidney disease, but I could be wrong. So with that, I'll stop. Thank you all for your attention and your participation as well as the panel. So Eric, you get to answer one question while you're standing up here, and then we'll sort of do a wrap up. Are there any studies, uh, is anyone doing studies on archived transmitted resistance mutations? Do you ever check a genotype after starting ART in a patient that you have identified with the transmitted drug resistance mutations? Yeah, so there's now been, I think, quite a bit of data, people using these extremely sensitive genotypic assays to look for low levels of resistant virus. And there have been several studies, and one, including one very prominent study that was published in JAMA probably over a year ago. When I say that, it probably means it's at least two, where they demonstrated that if they identified these low-level resistant mutations, low-frequency mutations that you couldn't detect on a standard population genotype, that it actually was associated with an increased risk of virologic failure. The problem was that a lot of the people who had that detectable mutation did not fail. So it's a little bit limited because, one, we don't have access to that test in clinical care. And two, a lot of people would have been denied the therapy that may have otherwise benefited. And we have to balance that against the fact that we do all these randomized controlled trials with efavirenz, and the virologic failure rate with resistance is always about 5%. So it's very, very low. So the answer to the question is people are looking at it. There are probably some people who harbor these resistant mutations that were transmitted that are clinically relevant, but we don't quite yet know how to use that in clinical practice. Okay, one last question. How often do you get a CD4 count in a stable patient, I'm presuming, on antiretroviral therapy? I would like to say, so, so if I had a patient whose CD4 count, their viral load's undetectable, they're clinically stable, I have no reason to believe they're not taking their medications regularly, and their CD4 counts are consistently over, pick your number, 300, 350, meaning nowhere near a point where I need to make a clinical decision about prophylaxis, as opposed to someone who's doing great, but their T cells are 200, where I may be thinking about it. In that scenario, which is the common one that we all have, I would love to tell you that I check a CD4 count once a year, and not any more than every six months, because I think that's the right answer. I do it every three months. <laughs> it's just a bad habit. It's a bad habit, bad, and expensive. Exactly. And there was one question about uh, IAS resistance, ISA, IAS USA resistance cards, and I think you can check with the IAS USA staff about that. So, Ron, I think uh, you and I are supposed to do a little wrap up here, so I'll invite you to come on up and let you start with the morning sessions, and I'll do the afternoon sessions. Okay, this is primarily for the webcast, but uh, hopefully it'll be useful for all of us. Um, Dr. Benson led off with our review of uh, the CROI meeting, and there were obviously lots of things that were new and exciting, including the, um, the so-called baby cure, um, which may or may not have been a cure, but in any case, um, uh, it got a lot of press attention. Uh, there are a few new novel antiretroviral drugs that uh, 
were uh, discussed, uh, some of the clinical trials that uh, show the, its effectiveness and uh, comparison to a few other um, drugs. Um, there was a lot around the uh, whole issue of PrEP. Um, and without going into the details about the individual studies, um, we, there are those studies that show effectiveness in some populations, such as men and others, uh, that uh, show perhaps in women it's not as effective or universally effective. Um, discussions about uh, opportunistic infections, especially uh, HIV and uh, HCV, rather, and co-infection with uh, tuberculosis, uh, and then a few issues related to inflammation. Um, with regards to pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, we do know that oral PrEP does work. Uh, there's, I think, enough data from a number of studies that uh, confirm that. Uh, although um, there is uh, still quite a bit of discussion about the issues of adherence, um, whether in fact that may be contributing to its lack of um, shown effect efficacy in certain population and risk groups. Um, there are issues uh, related to uh, drug interactions that need to be uh, considered uh, when one is discussing uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis with uh, your patients. And then um, there are that's all I wanted to say about that. And with regards uh, to aging, Dr. Justice uh, gave us a very nice talk uh, indicating that individualization of care is um, obviously critical uh, in this patient as it is in other patients, but especially amongst our older population who have multiple comorbidities and are on multiple medications. Um, and um, apropos to that, wherever possible, we should be looking towards simplifying uh, our treatment uh, regimens so as to make uh, the likelihood of drug-drug interactions less and to make it easier for patients to adhere to their uh, various treatment regimens. Uh, and finally, um, with regards to drug-drug interactions, um, there are a whole host of um, new interactions that we need to be concerned about given the availability of new drugs, uh, both uh, antiretroviral regimens um, as well as um, new uh, hepatitis C drugs that need to be considered. Um, there are uh, certain websites, including um, the Liverpool data, uh, database and the University of Toronto database, which you can use to um, look for these interactions. But keeping in mind uh, the drug metabolisms, uh, inducers versus uh, inhibitors, uh, which particular enzyme pathways are being affected, and what we know about um, metabolisms of individual drugs may make um, some early decisions with regards to what are the most likely interactions to occur, I think quite obvious. But um, at the same time, I think we also need to realize uh, which one of these interactions are most critical, because there are some uh, which may not be as critical as others. And therefore, uh, the ones that we should be most concerned about, I think, relate predominantly to um, effects on antiretroviral drug levels and whether, in fact, we are getting to, um, in, into situations, uh, for example, um, with um, in 
inhibitors where we might not have adequate uh, drug levels in some situations. So I'll stop there and turn it back over to Connie for the so final just words. <laughs> moving on to a brief summary and three key points from the afternoon's discussion, I think uh, Dr. Treisman wins the prize for the most entertaining discussion this afternoon telling us about uh, both patient conditioning and doctor behavioral conditioning and how this can complicate our choices in how we approach patient therapy. But the goals of behavioral therapy and how to intervene to rehabilitate patients who have trouble with addiction was really the theme of his discussion because our ultimate goal is to improve the quality of life for those individuals and to target those behaviors for appropriate treatment where we can do so. Dr. Peters gave a tour de force on new approaches to hepatitis C treatment, the goal here being to cure hepatitis C and prevent disease progression, meaning present, prevent progression of underlying liver disease. She reviewed for us the treatment cascade, pointing out that with our current regimens, only about 30% of patients are actually candidates for interferon-based treatment regimens. So the hope is that we can turn those numbers around with some of the new direct acting agents, although the currently available ones, telaprevir and bosepravir, are still uh, being used in the context of interferon and ribavirin-based treatment. They are associated with improved outcomes that are probably equivalent for HIV-infected and uninfected individuals with hepatitis C, but each of them has its set of complications in terms of major drug-drug interactions, particularly in our HIV-infected population. Some of the newer direct-acting agents that are currently in development appear to be approaching the point where they can cure underlying hepatitis C disease in the absence of interferon, although clinical trials looking at this continue, and those agents won't be available in the very short term, but as those trials come to fruition, I think the hope is that we will have direct-acting agents, all oral therapy that can be used without combination with interferon treatment. And then our last presentation, also very entertaining, how to treat anti, how to use antiretroviral therapy in the context of clinical cases. We heard a major emphasis on the shift in when to start antiretroviral therapy, really aiming to treat everyone with HIV infection as a, an infectious disease that has major organ system complications that are irreversible. The goal here should be to treat everyone for a variety of reasons and look for reasons not to treat as the exception rather than the rule in patients who have higher CD4 counts. There may be underlying factors in each individual that may predispose to complications and may introduce caution into when to start therapy, but in general, the paradigm shift toward treating everyone continues to, be, to move in that direction. We also heard about a number of complicating factors that may determine what regimens to choose when treating individuals with antiretroviral therapy, in particular looking at underlying organ system disease, underlying drug uh, concomitant drug therapy that's necessary for those individuals, and trying to minimize drug interactions and side effects where necessary and possible to improve not just efficacy but the long-term survival on antiretroviral therapy of individuals being treated. 
So I think we had a very productive day today, got a lot of new information, reviewed a lot of existing information, and we hope that it was successful in improving your uh, knowledge base about treating HIV and providing you with useful updates on new information. Obviously, many of the speakers are still here. If you have last-minute questions, I'm sure they'd be available to address those. Um, we have some last-minute housekeeping things. I don't have my little cheat sheet with me, so if I forget anything, Ron, you can remind me. But please make sure that you do go online and complete your evaluations for CME accreditation, that you turn in your badges, particularly the ones that have the little touch pads, because those are valuable to our organization. And uh, am I forgetting any other house? All right. So just thank you to all of you for your attention and your wonderful questions today. And we hope that you'll be back to see us next year.